You're listening to Mobile Bunny by Moomoo, demystifying markets one episode at a time. Hi, welcome to Mobile Money by Moomoo. I'm your host, Justin Zacks, Vice President of Strategy at Moomook Technologies. I've spent my whole career in and around financial markets, from working at a bulge bracket investment bank to a leading global financial news organization. It's something I have a real passion for. This is a show that helps investors gain a better understanding of markets and their money. In today's podcast, I will discuss why housing prices remain so high despite the rapid increase in mortgage rates. In order to do that, the first thing we need to do is understand how interest rates influence uh, housing generally. The majority of home buyers finance their purchase of a home with a mortgage, and mortgages are related to long-term rates generally. And so what I want to do is start with an example. Uh, most people right now are, are financing their homes with a 30-year fixed mortgage. So the idea is a fixed mortgage has uh, fixed payments that you pay over the length of the loan, 30 years in this case, every month. Uh, that's in contrast to a variable rate mortgage mortgage or an arm, you may have heard it called an adjustable rate mortgage, uh, where the rate can vary and your payment will vary. These were very popular during the great financial crisis, uh, but recently, uh, because of the risk involved, uh, they're not as popular, and most people have taken to getting these uh, 30-year fixed mortgages to buy for the most popular types of mortgages out there right now. So everything's going to be based on this. And and to give you an idea that what's influenced uh, the overall affordability of homes, it's been the interest rates and then also uh, the home prices. And that, that really eats into your overall payment. Let's look at an example of the average uh, U.S. home buyer. In the third quarter of this year, the median home price in the U.S. was $431,000. And so what we're going to do here is assume you have 20% to put down uh, and the rest of it you're going to finance with a 30-year mortgage. So... Uh, recently, rates have been around, mortgage rates have been around seven and a half percent. So, to give you an idea of how that might compare to when rates were three percent two or three years ago on a mortgage, uh, the payment right now for on a seven and a half percent mortgage for the average home buyer, you know, that four hundred thirty-one thousand uh, dollar home would be two thousand four hundred and eleven dollars. Yeah, that's right. Uh, per month. That's compared to only $1,454 back when rates were only 3%. That's an increase of almost 66%. But let's take that one step further because home prices have gone up. Uh, So if we go back to the third quarter of 2019, this is before the pandemic, uh, before all the stimulus that, you know, definitely has influenced uh, the housing markets and how people want to live and the size of the homes they want to live in. All these things uh, have really changed uh, because of the pandemic and because of the stimulus that was inserted into the system. The average median home price back then in the third quarter of 2019 was $318,000 for approximately. And so that payment at around 3% was $1,074. Again, comparing it to the same payment now, same home, by the way, you know, it could be the exact same home, uh, $2,411. That's almost 125% higher 
uh, compared to just four years ago. Uh, what what a huge difference uh, for a, someone that wants to move and go into a new home that's exactly the same as as, as uh, the average American lives in. So the real question becomes, you know, how does this huge increase uh, in the price of a home of, of a median home uh, influence everything? And, and what you have to understand is housing is just like any other good. Uh, there is a demand and there is a supply. And, and this uh, price of the mortgage and how much your mortgage costs, that is really all about the demand side. And we're going to get into the supply side of how many homes are actually available, uh, which is also a big, uh, important factor. Both of the demand and the supply influence housing. But housing is a very slow moving type of market. So uh, it's going to influence prices uh, in a much slower way over a longer period of time. So that's part of it. More immediately, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what has happened uh, with the number of transactions uh, and uh, the people that are buying homes with cash. So, Because not everybody buys their home with a mortgage. Some people just say, I'm going to just plunk it all down. They're going to take that $431,000 uh, and pay all cash. So for that first part, the people that are paying with mortgages. So what's really happening here is uh, now that payments are so much higher, only so many people can afford that increased payment. Uh, there are still people that can afford it. And so what's happened, uh, we've seen uh, mortgages approaching 8%, you know, uh, a few months ago. That was the, the highest we've seen in over 20 years. Uh, but during that time, in mid-October, we saw mortgage application for home purchases fall to their lowest levels uh, since 1995, which is, you know, uh, a, you know, almost 30 years ago. And, and that seems really crazy is particularly given uh, how much uh, the housing stock in the U.S. population has grown in that point. So these transactions, these low transactions levels, I really like to equate them to the stock market. And in the stock market, it's the same idea. It's it's volume. That, you know, you have the price of a stock and you have the volume. And a lot of times when you have very thin volume, uh, you can see big fluctuations. And it, it may not really refer, reflect the true price of a stock or the housing. It is the price at that particular time and point. Uh, but you might see some readjustment. And this is real, really the idea of demand and supply coming back into balance. And right now I said uh, the demand is just not there uh, from a lot of people. And this is just sheerly uh, based on affordability. Other factors uh, in terms of people actually wanting to buy homes, they're probably ne have never been higher. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, ultimately, only so many people uh, can afford to pay these elevated prices or, or want to. You know, it eats into a huge amount of uh, your costs. And, and everyone knows inflation nowadays and food and gas and all these things, uh, it, it's very expensive. So the idea that I now want to pay 100% more, 125% more uh, for a home that uh, is, you know, basically the same as what I might had, particularly if you're trying to move up, if you're trying to move up, say, on a 20% uh, home that's 20% more expensive, maybe just a little bit bigger, it, it could end up costing you 150% more uh, than your current payments because maybe you're locked in at 3%. You know? And so th these are all the types of factors that are keeping a lot of people right now out of the market that do want to buy a home and they are interested in upgrading or or they their family expanded. They need a little bit more space, but it's, it's really tough right now for a lot of families to do so. 
And that other buyer that we talked about, the person uh, that is paying all cash. So cash buyers uh, traditionally have about been about 25% of the market uh, in the years before the uh, pandemic, what you might consider a more normalized uh, market. Uh, and now they're about a third. So those are the people that are not as influenced by interest rates, but they still are uh, in a certain way when you think about it, because it's it's money that they can earn on that investment. So if you're sitting on, you know, $431,000 in cash, uh, you know, back before the pandemic uh, or during the pandemic when interest rates were uh, particularly low, uh, you weren't earning very much on that money. If you were just going to park it in treasuries, you might earn, you know, a tenth of a percent. Now, now you can earn almost 5% on that money. So that's, that's competing with, uh, with this because not only are homes somewhere that you're going to live, they're also an important investment. And a lot of people that buy cash uh, definitely think of them uh, in terms of that investment and what those alternatives they might get. And, and so if you're plunking down cash uh, for that type of thing, uh, you're going to want to see it in appreciation on your investment. And if, if prices are already this high, you know, are, you know, can you expect housing prices to increase five uh, percent or more a year like you can get in treasuries? And, and obviously this is after maintenance, repairs, utilities, taxes, insurance, renovations, improvements, all these different things. So you, you take all of that into account and, and it becomes even for the cash buyers, you say, well, it, it, they, they really have to have a good reason to say, oh, I want to do this. And again, some people just love the home and they have, have to, they're going to live there for, uh, and so at, at some point it's an investment, but it's also someplace you live. So it's kind of skirts this uh, middle ground between being an investment and being something that is a emotional purchase, something that you're going to use in, in perhaps uh, one of the most important purchases of your lifetime. So interest rates obviously influence uh, housing a lot. And the, the other question is, you know, kind of why have interest rates gone up so much? And and we've seen uh, some of this uh, due to inflation. So inflation uh, rose and the Federal Reserve uh, raised interest rates to combat inflation. And this is going to lift uh, interest rates on, you know, in the shorter area. So your, you know, your one year, two year interest rates and they, they influence, you know, the very near in interest rates, but it also influences uh, the longer rates. But some people might say, you know, well, long term interest rates went up, uh, but it seems like mortgage rates went up even more. And you would actually be right if you thought that. So normally uh, you're going to see about 150 to 200 basis points uh of a spread between uh, the current mortgage rates and the 10-year note. Uh, that's due to uh, forbearance, uh, mortgage servicing origination, what something they call the primary secondary spread. That's the pass-through rate uh, to sell a loan into the secondary uh, market. Um, but now that spread is almost 300 basis points higher. In fact, that's actually in line with the peak of what we saw in 08, 09 during the great financial crisis, which was about just over 290 uh, basis points. And so it's very interesting. So what, why has uh, you know this risen so quickly? Uh, if um, you know the the market's fine, people still have money, employment's still good. You know, is is there a financial problem? And and part of it comes down to 
uh, two things, and, and, and I looked at an article uh, recently from the Brookings Institute, and they, they kind of broke it down. You know, why is it? It's, it's not the same thing, because what we saw in 08, 09, it was really about credit risk, and and, and uh, people wanted to be compensated in, uh, for that credit risk because people were defaulting or, or, or might default. And here you have two factors uh, that the Brookings Institute is saying is causing uh, this much wider spread, the idea that you have a 4.5% uh, percent 10 year note uh, while having seven and a half percent mortgage rate. You know, why isn't it six and a half? And part of it has to do with with the fact that short term rates are higher uh, than long term rates. And, and so a lot of people would probably say, well, wh- why does that matter? Because mortgages, most you just told me most mortgages are 30 years long, but most people don't hold their mortgage uh, for 30 years. Uh, even if they live there for 30 years, maybe they pay it off early. Uh, maybe they move. So the average mortgage is probably, the average 30-year mortgage is probably only held around six or seven years. And again, here you're seeing six and seven-year uh, treasury securities trading a year yielding above uh, the 10-year, where in a more normal environment, you would see uh, that is the opposite. So that is going to increase uh, that spread between the mortgage rate and uh, the 10-year rate. Uh, the other part of it is is prepayment risk. Uh, and really, that has to do with the uncertainty around where future interest rates are going to be. And if you've just seen what's happened uh, in, in this treasury market, and you know, particularly uh, on the long end and how much rates have moved up and then they moved down and then they moved up and recently they came back down. I mean, you just heard, you know, the biggest increases in X number of years. It it seems like every month uh, we're hearing uh, these types of headlines. And that's really about the volatility, this bond market volatility Uh, that increases prepayment risk. uh, And people really don't know what's going on there. And and when there is uncertainty, there's going to be a bit of a of a wider spread. So payments are obviously a lot higher than they were uh, recently, and, and house prices have also uh, really increased uh, a lot. So, but how does this really stack up historically? Uh, so, if, if you want to do that, you really there's two different markets you really want to look at. There's existing homes, uh, ones that have already been built, uh, which are resold uh, by the owners, and then there's new homes which are sold by home builders. And then the new home market accounts for usually around ten percent of the homes sold uh, and the existing ones are about 90%. And so one of my favorite indicators to look at is is called the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller National Home Price Index. Uh, That measures homes across the nation, existing homes, and it measures homes that have sold before. So that's the most interesting part about this index. It's really comparing apples to apples. You have this home, it's sold a certain number of years ago, now it's being resold. Uh, What are the differences in those prices? And that's uh, what they're really tracking. And they track a bunch of different metro markets. Uh, So what you have to realize is, you know, there is a national housing market and people move, but a lot of people don't want to move. So housing can be regional and and, and it can be even block by block for a lot of people. uh, in, in terms of location. So it's very location specific. Think about being on the ocean or three blocks off the ocean, you know, what you may 
pay uh, to be right on the ocean as opposed to a few blocks off. There's definitely going to be differences based upon uh, those locations, even even super micro ones. So if you look at the most recent data uh, from September, home prices rose 3.9% from a year earlier in September. So we can still see that existing prices are still hitting those, you know, hitting those highs. And so uh, 15 of the 20 metro markets measured, uh, you know, the the 20 biggest metro markets measured by Case Schiller reported month over month increases, uh, including cities hitting all time highs, Atlanta, Boston, Charlotte, Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Miami, uh, New York, uh, where I'm based here, Tampa and Washington. Uh, So the meeting uh, is just going all over the place. Very, very interesting. What you do see is some of those housing uh, in the western area, you know, your Californias, your mountain regions, uh, the prices there have already peaked What you do have to realize, though, is there is a lag in a lot of this data. Uh, This is data from September uh, being reported, you know, a month or two later. And that data was from contracts that might have been signed uh, 90 to 120 days beforehand. So a lot of times you're really looking at the stuff that is delayed five or six months. Uh, So it's something to really think about when you see these data. You know, it's it's good, solid data, but it takes a long time uh, to get through the pipeline because it takes a long time to buy or sell a home. It's not like a stock where it's instantaneous and you see it uh, right away. So it's important to to note that. So just to give you a little perspective here, when we talk about housing prices, you know, know, obviously there's uh, inflation, but if you uh, you look at some of these numbers, uh, you know, I pulled up uh, from uh, the government's uh, statistics of what, you know, the median home prices were, 2010, about $275,000. Go back to 2000, 160. $69,000. 1990, about $123,000. 80, $64,000. And in 1970, $23,400 was the median home price. It's interesting to see uh, how some of these prices have moved. And and, uh, obviously, just because these prices have moved up in the past does not mean uh, that these prices uh, will always go up. And we saw that during the great financial crisis. Uh, You know, just because... uh, uh, a home may be considered an investment. It doesn't mean uh, that they will always increase. And, and you also have to look at that relative uh, to inflation. And so we, that's a little bit about the existing home side. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the new home side. And to me, that is actually the more interesting part because uh, with existing homes, a lot of people are locked into their 3% mortgage. Uh, they have a good job. You know, unemployment is really low right now. So they don't necessarily have to sell. But with new homes, uh, you know, these builders, they have a certain number of uh, you know, plots of land, uh, they have to pay, they have to keep moving their business along. They can't just have these homes sitting there for five or 10 years while, while they wait to get the price they want. So what you see here from, a, from the builder side is a lot of times they have to move their inventory at some point. And they can wait a few months, Maybe they can wait up to a year, but at some point they have to move their inventory. They're they're there to make a profit for the company on a regular basis. So to me, that's where you're usually going to see some of the price changes first is in that new home market. 
So from the most recent uh, new home data from October from the government, uh, what I do see are here is uh, some reversals in, in some of the trends, although obviously off of, you know, definitely extreme levels. So the first thing to look at is uh, the number of new homes sold and purchases of uh, new single family homes uh, actually decreased 5.6% to a annualized pace of $679,000. So that is actually still up 17.7% uh, from October of 2022, a year ago, uh, when mortgage rates averaged closer to about uh, 8%. So the thing I want to look at with new home sales is really twofold is again back to the price and the volume and, and see where those trends are going because those trends are going to be indicative of the overall market uh, in the future. And we have seen some changes in some of those trends. Uh, so the most recent data from October on new home sales, purchases of uh, new single family homes decreased 5.6% to a uh, annualized pace of 679,000 homes. And that's actually quite a, a low rate historically. And, and you do see a decrease. But what you also have to realize was during October, mortgage rates, uh, you know, peaked at around 8%. Uh, and compared to last year uh, in October of 2022, uh, those home sales are actually up 17.7%, even though mortgage rates uh, were about 7% at that time. So you saw higher mortgage rates and actually more sales on a year-on-year -year basis may be an indicator that we're moving a little bit. And part of that may have to do... Uh, to the price change. Uh, and so the median home sold during October for a, a new home was $409,000 uh, approximately. And so that's a drop of 17.6% year on year. Uh, and so that the peak was back, and that was actually the peak back in October 22 uh, at around $497,000. So you're, you did see that big drop and people did react uh, on a year-on-year -year basis by buying slightly more homes. Again, this is uh, still slightly more, and we'll talk a little bit more about supply a little bit later in the podcast. But what I do want to get at is maybe we have seen some of this reversal. Uh, and again, new homes are going to be much more sensitive uh, to the price uh, in much quicker moving uh, than the existing home sales. So I, I would wanna see, are these existing home sales starting to fall in line uh, with some of uh, these new home sales? And it'll be very interesting over the next few months and year to see exactly what happens. So we've talked a lot about absolute price terms and how high they are. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what the average home costs uh, relative to the median income. So uh, the median home uh, traditionally has cost about 2.6 times the, the median income, uh, a ratio real estate agents often use as a kind of a threshold for affordability. That ratio is now above five times. And so what you're seeing is a record number of people in the housing market are going to be cost burdened. And it's actually very interesting to look at because you have uh, the people that are in their homes that are, you know, own homes and the people that rent. And right now, you know, it's it's not just these home prices that are going up. Rents are going up a lot too. And right now, 52% uh, 
of renters and 23% of home buyers uh, were housing burdens in 2022, according to the Census Bureau. So that that has to do uh, with approximately giving more than 30% of your income to housing. That's how it's defined by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, and so you, you might want to ask, well, you know, 52% of renters, only 23% of homeowners. Well, let's go back to what we talked about before. A lot of people are not paying uh, that 125% more because they haven't moved. They locked in, you know, either they purchased, uh, you know, uh, years ago or they refinanced and they're locked in with a, a 3% rate. So they're paying a lot lower, but eventually those mortgages will start to roll off. Eventually people may get a job in a new city and have to move, uh, you know, those things happened in, you know, the mortgages roll off approximately about two and a half percent of people will have a mortgage roll off every year. Uh, so these things will eventually move through the pipeline, but it could take uh, years. Uh, but meanwhile, you're saying the, the renters are really burdened. But if you look at the actual costs, you know, and, and, and so meanwhile, what should you do? And, and on the other side, you think about uh, what it costs to rent versus to buy. So you would think, well, all these renters are really cost burdened, but because of the lack of supply, because these people, these owners don't want to sell, uh, it's actually more expensive uh, to own uh, versus rent, at least if you're doing it, you know, going in there right now and getting those seven and a half percent mortgages, it now costs 52% more to buy a home compared to rent uh, the same thing. And that's according to uh, data from uh, CBRE. Uh, and at the peak of the housing bubble in 2006, it was only 33% uh more expensive, a gap that quickly reversed uh, when you saw housing prices come down. And, and, and this is, you know, nationally, regionally, some of these, I mean, I saw some of this data, uh, particularly in California, in Los Angeles, those numbers are over 200%. So it's 200% more expensive to buy right now than it is to rent. Uh, and most of the time, you'll see a lot of these numbers come back uh, in to balance. So that either means that rents are going to go higher uh, and housing prices will stay or remain in similar levels or perhaps go up or that housing prices will come down. And, and, and if you look at kind of what's happening in the market and in the affordability, uh, it's it's hard to say that rents are going to be able to go up mo much more unless people's incomes and their real incomes uh, go up a lot more. So you may see some of those housing prices come off. It's just a matter of you know, how long it's going to take. And ultimately you have to ask yourself, you know, uh, if all these people are housing burden, you know, who is buying all these homes? So I did a little research into this and it, and it was surprising to me and maybe it's surprising to you. It's, it was not who I thought, uh, you know, you always think about people in their twenties and thirties and uh, influencing, uh, the housing market the most, but, all of this demand, the people that are really buying this and moving it is is the baby boomers. Those are people uh, born between the mid-1940s and the mid-1960s. Uh, and what's happening is they're aging in place rather than moving into uh, assisted living or senior living arrangements. Uh, a recent report I read from uh, Bar a Barclays uh, senior economist, he talked a lot about this and basically said, 
boomers are creating more households, partly because they're separating uh, due to divorce or death. Uh, and he noted that almost all the ad additional demand uh, that we're seeing for housing right now is driven by the aging population and significant increases in the 65 to 74 year old range and the 75 and older groups. So now we know who's driving the demand, but the, the real question becomes, you know, why haven't, and the, the original question of this podcast, why haven't housing prices come down uh, because the interest rates rose? Uh, and, and ultimately, a lot of this has to do with uh, the lack of sellers. And we talked about the people that are locked into 3% mortgages. And, and, and I also want to talk a little bit about the household formation. You know, there's, you know, depending how you look at it and, and, and what statistics you cite, there's about a 6.5 million uh, person household gap between the household formations. So in uh, 1973, there was 212 million people in the U.S., uh, and now they're 340 million people. But those new home sale statistics I cited are about the same as they were in 1973 in absolute numbers. So we're just not creating enough homes quickly enough. And it's taking longer uh, to build homes. You know, a lot of the homes now are multifamily, whereas they were single family in the past. You know, that that mix has gotten a lot bigger. Uh, and, and because of that and because of zoning regulations and other other uh, supply chain issues. It now takes about 15 months uh, to build something where, it, you know, in the past, it usually took about uh, an average of seven months. So with the builders, you know, they're not going to go out there. You know, they want to make their money. They're not going to go out there and try to overbuild because they got burned in the great financial crisis. They don't want to have that happen again. And so they're happy to kind of grow incrementally uh, and not create enough homes, uh, you know, and limit that supply because it will keep the, the, the price high. You know, eventually some of these fixed rate mortgages will, will roll off. What's really interesting to think about is some of these other countries. So, you know, the U.S. is kind of unique in that people finance uh, with 30-year uh, mortgages. In, in Canada, they use a lot of variable rate mortgages. And in a lot of ways, Canadian prices are even more out of control than the U.S. in terms of, you know, the income level to the housing price. So I'll be watching the Canadian market and what's happening there with prices as a possible precursor to what may happen in the U.S. Uh, the other way I like to think of it, again, is back to the to the stock market. And, and it's the idea of uh, you know, limited supply. So when you have a stock that has a low float, uh, there's a potential for a short squeeze. And, you know, sometimes these short squeezes last quite a long time if there's that incremental demand. And, and, and like I said, housing, this is in stocks, which move very fast. And, and in housing, uh, they, it, the market moves very slow. So a, quote, housing short squeeze is not going to just last a month or two. It, it could possibly last several years. I, I think of uh, this uh, stock called uh, VinFast Auto. It recently went public uh, via a special purpose 
acquisition uh, company on the NASDAQ on August 15th. Uh, within days of its debut, it, it went from uh, you know its initial price of $10 to like $93. Um, uh, and uh, it was at one point worth more than Ford and GM. It's, it's, it's a Vietnamese uh, auto manufacturer that specializes in electrical uh, vehicles. If anyone doesn't know, you know, check it out. Um, but uh, it has a free float of only about 7.2 million shares uh, available to trade. That's uh, like something like less than a percent. I think it's like 0.3% of the company's authorized shares. Uh, so uh, it's something to think about. Like, so when you don't have a lot of shares outstanding, sometimes it's easier uh, for a short squeeze to occur because there's no incremental sellers. Uh, at some point, people may realize, well, you know, I, 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 you know, it's gone up a lot. I may want to sell. And, and we did see that with this stock that's, you know, take a look at the price. But last I checked, it was well below $93 a share, the, the, the peak that had, had reached. And so the real question becomes, you know, are you talking about a housing crash? No, I'm not going to equate uh, the housing market to a very specific stock here, but but the idea is the same, and, and, and the the actual levels might not be the actual percentage increase and decrease might not be the same. Uh, but uh, a lot of this has to do uh, with employment. As long as people have money or earning that paycheck, uh, they're going to be able to make those housing payments. They're going to, you know, so you're not going to see prices crash. And, and, and generally, uh, we learned a lot, uh, you know, which is great from the last uh, crisis, housing crisis. We're not giving no-doc loans to people. We're not saying, okay, just go out here and buy your $10 million home. You don't need to make any money. So now you actually have to show supporting income. You have to be able to make those payments. So uh, the problem that you run into eventually uh, is people unable to make those payments. And, and a lot of that comes from losing your job. So when you lose your job, uh, you can't make the payments. And so that might be the ultimate uh, economic indicator to look at uh, in terms of when housing prices may come down or maybe at least stabilize. So, you know, so I'll be looking at unemployment. The other part of the, the other part that comes in, particularly at the higher end of homes, is um, the stock market. Right. So as the stock market rises, people have more money. They feel like they have more money. They're more willing to go out and buy homes, take some of that stock market profit or uh, just feels like they're more flush. That's really a lot of all driven by this investor psychology. Um, do you feel safe? Uh, and on the lower end, that investor psychology has a lot to do with inflation. It's like if, if inflation's coming down as it is now, maybe people are a little bit uh, less worried about making their other payments and they're willing to increase their housing payments. Uh, but if inflation starts to rear its ugly head, uh, you know, in, in, in people do remember what just happened, you know, less than six months ago and how, how bad inflation got. So it's something to think about. All of these factors are really going to play into uh, what will happen. Uh, but ultimately, in terms of having, you know, that quick crash, uh, if we have a 
deep recession that could happen, but otherwise you might not see a a quick crash. You might see a slow uh, uh, leveling off of prices or a slow decrease or or a uh, decrease relative to inflation over many years as as we readjust and some of these levels that are are at quite extremes uh, come back more into balance and ultimately. Uh, maybe we will see more supply of homes uh, and maybe we, we will see more trading of the homes, actual people buying and selling homes. And that's when you know the market is in a, a, a better state in terms of realizing the true value and the true price. Another point to look at when you think about, you know, are we in the same position as we were before the great financial crisis uh, is that uh, rates are now higher uh than a lot of people's mortgages, which was the opposite before. So you people had high mortgages and they were refinancing, they were cashing out, doing cash out refis, they were doing home equity loans. So uh, now people, you know, and, and a lot of really what happened and caused that crash was due to leverage. And again, we don't have that type of leverage, but could we get that leverage? Yes, but you would have to have people now cashing out at rates that are higher than their mortgage. So if your mortgage is at 3%, and you're going to get a home equity line at eight or nine or whatever it's going to cost you based on your credit rating, you might not be willing to do so uh, if, as if if it was lower. So if it was lower than three percent, you must have all you know it's almost free money, and I'll take it. But here, uh, you know, you have a big cost to come into some of these home equity lines. People are going to think twice, and so you might not see a rapid increase. Uh, in that leverage. So to me, it's going to be less about the leverage and it's going to be more about the economy, uh, employment, uh, recession, uh, the level of the stock market, the investor psychology that's really going to play into the fact or into the idea that we will or won't have any type of housing slowdown or crash or, you know, there's so many different possibilities. So a lot of people will ask, well, is, you know, it's housing a good investment. And, and there's certain people that will tell you, oh, the housing's always a good investment. And, and it's really a lot more complicated than that. Uh, and you can think of, you know, there, there are a lot of advantages to owning a home. There's tax advantages. You can deduct interest. You pay on up to $750,000 of your mortgage debt. But meanwhile, you got to pay that mortgage. Don't, for, don't forget that. Uh, you can deduct state and local property taxes uh, limited at 10000 But again, you have to itemize. So you have to be in a certain uh, tax you know, bracket to make that worthwhile. Uh, capital gains exclusion. So you, you don't have to pay taxes on the first $250,000 of profit from selling your home if you're, or if you're single and that's half a million if you're married. Uh, but there are downsides uh, in, in terms of the costs and the investment. Uh, you know, you have your general upkeep. You got to, you got to, you know, plow the snow, you got to rake the leaves, you have the maintenance uh, and uh, something goes wrong with the roof. Uh, your boiler goes out and it's cold in, in the winter. And this is why maybe it's just so important for homeowners to have and honestly everyone to have an emergency fund. Uh, when these types of things go wrong, uh, you have repairs, real estate taxes, and then think about transaction costs. You know, uh, you know, it, it stocks uh, in, in a lot of cases uh, have very low transaction costs. But, uh, you know, when you go to sell your home, a lot of times you're paying six percent just for the broker. And then if you add all these other costs up, it might make come almost up to like 10%. And so when you look at that, you're saying, oh, you know, are, are these really good investments? And if you look at some of the, one of the interesting things uh, that I like to look at is, you know, housing moves very slow. So you have to look over 
a really long time. And if you looked over what's happened since like 1980, you saw mortgage rates going from, you know, at 1.20% to like 3%. Uh, you saw uh, a trend of lower down payments. You saw a trend of a lot of things becoming cheaper. So like, let me give you an example of that. Like you think about people pay more of their percentage of income in housing, but uh, think about what things cost. In, 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 in 1901, clothing uh, took up 42% of people's budget. Food took up 14%. That's, that's 56% total. Now that percentage is about 22%. Uh, and it's, it's actually up from about 19.8% before the pandemic. So it's something to think about. So people have spent more of their money in housing and probably healthcare costs have also gone up as a percentage. But th these are all the types of things you want to think about because there's only so much in that pie uh, that people uh, can do. And so what the prices changes don't tell you in, in all of this is all the money that's been invested. So you see these Case-Shiller numbers, but you forget, like, maybe you got a new kitchen. Uh, maybe they painted it. You know, uh, you know the house, uh, house is really a, a depreciating asset in, in a lot of ways. It's the land that's valuable. They don't make any more land. Uh, at some point, that becomes more scarce. But the housing itself, uh, you know, eventually deteriorates. And if you don't take care of it, it will, will fall apart and it will have to be upgraded. So all these things are are something to think about when you think about investing in a home and how valuable it is to invest in a home. So that that's you know whether housing itself is a is a good investment. So what about real estate stocks? You know related to residential housing, and, and I'm just going to talk a little bit about that. Mainly just two buckets I think of is some of these residential REITs or real estate investment trusts uh, that own and operate uh, you know residential housing and they rent them out to people. Uh, and so what what you've really seen here is a lot of these REITs have uh, repriced lower, uh, and even though they're a hedge against inflation, what's what, what's really hurt them is the interest rates. So as as the interest rates have gone up, uh, they've underperformed other parts of the equity market uh, because again. The yields you can get on U.S. Treasuries, uh, you know, look very favorable and can compete. You know, a lot of these have a similar investor profile. The people that are investing in REITs for some type of, you know, annualized or you know quarterly income that they're looking for are the same type of people that that may be investing in, in U.S. Treasury securities. And the second group that I that I think about that hasn't done as well either is anything that's related to brokerage. Um, you know, and a lot of these companies, and there's not that many of them, but the ones that that operate a broker or adjacent to it, it it's really about transactions. And we talked a lot about that before. So what the interesting part about a lot of those stocks is they, they may do better once they're, uh, you know, the supply and demand come into better balance since we, we have more transactions. So once we see, uh, you know, existing home sales start to go back up and start to get towards, you know, a, a more normalized trend, uh, those companies uh, may do well as long as people are buying and selling homes. The price of the home uh, will matter, but it may not matter as much as the actual transaction. So if, you know, a real estate broker is making a certain percentage on every home he sells, if that price is lower, he makes Less, but he's still making money or she's still making money. And so that becomes the, the real question uh, with that is, you know, are you 
actually selling something. Because if you don't sell anything, you're not going to make anything. And so those companies um, have a tough time uh, when transactions are, are, are low. So the real question becomes, you know, when when will we see or, or what will indicate uh, when uh, these supply and demand comes into balance? And, and probably one of the most important statistics to look at is, is the months of supply on the market. And in kind of in a balanced market, usually you see there's about a five to six uh, month supply. Uh, and recently in October, I think we saw almost an eight month supply and that was up, uh, it was 7.8% 7.8 months supply compared to 7.2 months supply in September. And to give you a, an idea, the all time record high was 12.2 months supply in January of, uh, 2009. And the all time record low was 3.3 months in August of 2020. And so right now we're above, uh, this normal range. And so it's something that I watch. It's also a, a very interesting recession indicator. So a lot of times you're going to see uh, these month supply uh, peak uh, during recession. So it's it's something I'll be watching. Uh, you know, is is that going to come back down into line with five or six percent from seven point eight right now, or is it going to continue to go up? And, and at that point, well, maybe that may be a precursor or or an indication of that there is a recessionary environment. So just something to think about uh, going forward. So there's you know there's a lot of fascinating data out there with the housing. I like to track them all. So uh, great to have you listen to the podcast and I hope to have everyone back for a new episode next week. Thank you very much. The opinions expressed are those of the host and any guest speaker and not necessarily those of Moomoo Technologies Inc. or its affiliates. The podcast is provided for informational and educational purposes only and is not a recommendation or endorsement of any particular investment or investment strategy that may be mentioned or covered in the podcast. All investments involve risk and the loss of principle as possible. Past performance does not indicate or guarantee future success. Moomoo is not affiliated with any outside guests or their companies. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and may not be appropriate for all investors. The Moomoo app is an online trading platform offered by Moomoo Technologies, Inc. Securities, brokerage products, and related services available through the Moomoo app are offered by Moomoo Financial, Inc., a member of FINRA, SIPC.